Hornet Heaven. Moving on. Written by Ollie Wicken. Read by Colin Mace. Nineteen twenty one January Her child has gone, and it is hard to know what to do with the things he left behind. She goes to his empty room and picks up one of the shirts he used to wear to play football. She unfolds it and buries her face in it. Then she folds it again. She cannot throw out his clothes. Not yet, if ever. But she knows she must let go of him, some of him at least, to start with. On the table is a booklet with a grey cover. Can this go? She picks it up. It is the West Hearts Post Football Handbook for the current season, 1920-21. It costs threepence. It means nothing to her. But what did it mean to him? She reads the first page. It says, Never has any season in Watford's history opened with fairer prospects. In the margin, there is a tick of approval in pencil made by his hand. It is just graphite on paper, but it is him. It is his childlike excitement, his happiness. She presses a fingertip against the graphite, but nothing comes through. There is no happiness now. She turns the page. There is a photograph of Watford's goalkeeper, a man called Reginald Williams. Beside the picture, the boy has written numbers. There is a four, a forty, and a forty-two. She cannot guess what he meant. It has the appearance of a mathematical sequence, inviting her to work out the next answer. Whatever it is, Whatever he was thinking, it is a puzzle. She shuts the booklet. She should get rid of it. It is telling her she is a mother who did not, who will never, fully know her son. 1921, February. She sits on a bare wooden plank. It is too hard and she worries it may snag her skirt. She is here for some kind of information that might help her solve the puzzle the boy left her, but she feels out of place. The people around her, here at the West Hearts Club and Ground at Cassio Road, are shouting. She does not understand the rules of the game she is watching. The boy understood football. He loved the game. And loved this team. Watford. If she could make herself love them too, she and the boy will have this in common, 
and share it forever. Too late, of course, but better than nothing. But she cannot concentrate on the game. When she sees a small blonde boy further along the stand, her heart leaps. Is it him? Did the illness not take him after all? Is this where he has been all along? No. Of course, no. In this crowd she sees him everywhere and nowhere. She cannot bear it. She will not come again. 1921. March. She stands in the cemetery on Vicarage Road. She watches, bedraggled, as cold winter rain steals her job of keeping the boy's gravestone clean. She feels useless. What is the point of her? She was meant to have protected her child. She places a glass photo frame at the foot of the headstone. It holds a cutting of a photograph from the local newspaper. The boy is in the photograph, a face in the crowd at the football. The boy is happy, shouting for his team, shouting for Watford. But this itself is a puzzle to her, a puzzle she cannot seem to solve. She steps away and clasps the hand of her daughter, the boy's twin. The mother wants there to be comfort, so she composes herself and speaks of how the boy will be waiting for them in heaven, even though she does not believe in a life after death. The twin stares at the wet, unknitted clods of tur and says, I always knew where he was. I could feel it, but now I do not know where he is. And there is no comfort in any of this. 1921, April. Spring has thawed and softened the mud. The boy stands behind the ropes next to the goal, staring, barely taking the game in. He cannot stop thinking that when he was alive and away from the house, his mother or sister would always fetch him when he was wanted at home. But no one has come looking. He has heard no one calling. Sometimes at these matches he wants to search the earthly crowd to see if his mother and sister are trying to find him, to know that they want him back. But he doesn't search. It would be futile, he reasons. He is an abandoned child. He drops his gaze to his shoes, shoes that had started to pinch and that his mother will never now replace, and he listens to the cries of excitement around him. Football gives him no pleasure now. It is the same thing over and over again and there is nothing else. He is stuck. He is a 13-year-old boy watching the same team at the same ground and it will never change. The same inadequate team at the same inadequate ground. Sometimes, on the worst days, his anger makes him shout that he wants to rip up the ropes, tear down the goalposts, burn down the stands. Older men step away from him and mutter to each other that young Derek is suffering the rages of adolescence. It feeds his fury more. If they are right, these men in this heaven where no one ages, his rages will never cease. 1921, August. The summer night is too hot for sleep and his twin goes to the kitchen for water from the tap. She sees their mother sitting at the table in the dark, staring down at the same football handbook. 
It is not the heat that stops the mother sleeping. The twin finds a cup and waits for the tap to run cold. She keeps her face turned to the wall. Every day in the mirror she sees her own similarity to the boy. She sees him and she wishes to spare her mother. She drinks the water and returns to bed. She lies still and listens. She hears the faraway bleat of a sheep. A restless crow cries out. But the rest is emptiness. I'm here, she whispers. But where are you? 1921, September. The boy sits alone in woodland. Autumn has started to darken the leaves. He has taken himself away from the football and the older men, away from everyone. In dappled sunlight, he sees a kindly Italian gentleman nearing him, a doctor. The doctor sits down and proposes that the boy help him with an undertaking, the gathering of facts and statistics to document the history of the interest they share. The doctor spreads out a set of handbooks which, he says, contain useful information. The boy glances at the books, his eyes drawn to a grey cover he recognises. It bears the date 1920-21 and suddenly, unwillingly, he is flooded with the same delight that filled him when he paid threepence for his own copy last year. He tries to suppress the feeling because he is not ready for delight. And yet, he is drawn to this echo of home. He picks up the booklet. Turning the pages, he remembers how, with a pencil, he had already begun to add facts and figures to his own copy. The same undertaking as the doctor is now encouraging. Perhaps he thinks he would find enjoyment in... No. He throws the booklet down. He will not entertain the thought. There can be no enjoyment in this place. 1922... January. The mother sits at a table in the village hall. It is her daughter's birthday and there is music and dancing, but for the mother, this can only be a half celebration. One twin has reached the age of 14 and thus the other is left behind. From now on each January, the boy will recede further into the distance to the tune of happy birthday. Every year, gained by the girl, will be another lost by the boy. Tonight's gathering has been arranged by an older cousin. She watches him dance and laugh. He too has known bereavement, but he is not adrift like she is. He does not weep at the smallest losses, such as a button from a coat. He does not sit at his kitchen table throughout the night wondering what might be meant by the numbers 4, 40 and 42. How is he able to look forward, not back? How does he do it? Is it by keeping himself busy? He used to be chairman of the Urban District Council and now he is on a committee that is sending a petition to the Privy Council for a royal charter that will make the town of Watford a borough. He and the town are moving on, growing while she withers. She must take herself in hand. 1922 April. 
She stands in a large bare kitchen. Sunshine streams through the window. This is what she needs, she tells herself. Spring is here and it will be a new start to move into this house. It is nearer to her daughter's school and though the house is the same size as before, there will be a spare room because she will not keep a room for the boy. She cannot. She must not. She pleads with herself. There will be new activities to occupy her here. She will clear the brambles in the garden, she thinks, and she will fix the fence at the far end because at present she can see through the fractured timbers to the football ground that is being built just beyond, on the other side of the occupation road. She stops. The boy is back in her mind as vivid as ever. She thinks how happy he would have been at the notion of his favourite football team playing in a brand new stadium at the end of his garden. He would have marked the idea with a pencil tick. A dozen pencil ticks. In the kitchen, lit by sunshine, she smiles. In her mind, the boy smiles too, wherever he might be. She will take the house. 1922, August. The lawn is freshly mown. Its sweet, sharp scent is uplifting. There is a musical chink of bone china as her cousin sets down his teacup and settles back in the striped deck chair she has set out for him. He compliments her on her efforts in the garden. It is quite marvellous, Ralph Thorpe says. His visit brings news. Two days ago, he tells her, the king affixed his royal seal to the charter that will make Watford a borough. Joyously, she brings her hands together in a single clap of delight. The clap is for her cousin, for the town, for everyone who is looking to the future and making progress. And this evening, of course, Ralph Thorpe says, gesturing beyond the repaired fence at the bottom of the garden, it is the grand opening of Watford's new football stadium. Her cousin's lips stretch with satisfaction, and just for a moment, in the family resemblance, she sees again the smile of her boy. But the boy is not smiling. His lips are clenched tight against his chattering teeth. He is terrified. Somehow, he is high in the sky, neither supported nor suspended, moving southwards. How is he not falling? How are none of them falling? The phalanx of ghostly Watford supporters being transported high above the West Hearts Club and Ground and the Vicarage Road Cemetery. He hears the Italian doctor say, Fear not, Derek. We will all be fine. I am sure of it. And suddenly, all motion stops. The boy braces himself for the drop to follow. If this is how his time is to end, he tells himself, then good. The boy that he was, down on earth, with his mother and sister, was lost forever 18 months ago. This afterlife has never felt like home. He waits, eyes shut. But the drop hasn't come. He hears the voices of others. What happens now? Ach, I don't know. Where are we? Well, if I remember rightly, this road is called Vicarage Road. There used to be a recreation ground somewhere along here, but I don't see it. 
Wait. Oh. Wonderful. What? That's fantastic. Look, down there. The boy opens his eyes. Far below is a brand new football stadium. The boy finds himself descending, slowly, gently. Below him is a grandstand that is truly grand. There are steep banks where tens of thousands will gather and cheer. He hears others call out. Look at that. That looks brilliant. We've only gone and moved and taken bits of the old place with us. We are set for a marvellous future. The boy is descending, but something is rising within him. The football club is making a fresh start. This will be their new home. And his. His lips part. His soft cheeks lift. The boy smiles. The boy's feet touch down. He sees an ancient turnstile set into the fence of the new stadium and a wooden hut stocked with programmes. He runs towards the hut in excitement. He sprints. He passes his mother, though he cannot see her nor she him. Down on earth she is with his twin sister, looking out for someone who might help her. She is holding a grey-covered handbook that she could never bring herself to throw away. Standing at the top of the road, she sees a young boy of roughly the same age as her departed son. She stops him. She opens the handbook to the photograph of Reginald Williams. She points out the numbers marked in pencil 4, 40 and 42. What could they mean? she asks. The child thinks for only a moment before giving the next two numbers in the sequence. 43 and 42. These, the child says, are the totals of matches played each season so far by the goalkeeper, whom he calls Skilly Williams. The mother laughs. The puzzle entangled her for more than 18 months, but now this boy, so similar to her own boy, has finally freed her, so simply. She asked the boy his name, but he is already walking away and she doesn't quite catch it. Did he say Ainwood? She asks her daughter. William Ainwood? But her daughter, the remaining twin, does not hear the question. She is preoccupied. She has felt something. There you are, she whispers to her brother because on the other side of the invisible veil that separates worlds, Derek Garston has entered the programme hut and is somewhere he'll be happy for at least the next hundred years. The End Moving On was written and produced by Ollie Wicken. 
it was read by Colin Mace. For more information on the Hornet Heaven stories, please visit hornetheaven.com. For more information on the centenary of Vicarage Road in 2022, please visit watfordfc.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>